Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Mercedes, thank you very much for taking the time. Was there always a sense that things weren't quite right at RMC? It's something that I've certainly heard for years, Roy, and thank you for having me on to talk about this. Um, it's something that I had heard in particular from women who had attended Royal Military College. I'd heard it from men who attended, too. Uh, but this sense that uh, it was what many sources described to me as a locker room mentality, which is not to say that everyone who went there had that. There was, you know, always folks who did not. But the concern was that there were things going on, sexual misconduct um, and at times sexual assault that were not being appropriately dealt with according to these women. Um, And some of them were victims of sexual assault themselves. Many are still in the forces. They don't want to come forward. Um, And when I heard from Mark Popov, I thought it was remarkable because here is the former director of cadets, uh, a man who was in command in Dan District of Afghanistan during Operation Mashrak, uh, which was a huge NATO operation. I was there at the same time when that went down. And he told me that he found his command um, at RMC as director of cadets more difficult and more traumatizing than Afghanistan because he felt that what he saw was a betrayal of the women and, and the men who went there. Uh, and that the unwillingness to act on sexual misconduct, as he put it, was not just about women and not just about sexual misconduct. It was about a problem with leadership and the message that that sent to Canada's future leaders. Because, of course, for for your listeners who aren't familiar with RMC, it's like Canada's West Point. It's where most officers go uh, to be trained. It's a a university degree-granting institution. But if the example being set there is that when there is sexual misconduct, it's not appropriately addressed it's not taken seriously or it's covered up, um, then it would be no surprise that you would see that manifest in leaders when they take command uh, if that's the lesson that they're learning from the time that they're a young cadet. Absolutely. So this Mark Popoff, who you spoke to 27 years, as you pointed out uh, on Global News and uh, on the West Block, 27 years, a veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces, led troops in Afghanistan, but was a director of cadets uh, at RMC 2014-2015 and said that what he saw there devastated him. Now, just think about the, the context of this. Devasta- I'm thinking about it. Devastated uh, him uh, and, and what he believed in and what the faith that he had in the military and the military structure and the military structure's responsibility to their younger and subordinate ranks uh, as far as taking care of them is concerned, and particularly if they're being sexually um, harassed, abused, assaulted. It's, it's terrible. Yeah, it's it's shocking, and it's, you know, when I when I asked him, because he, he was quite emotional about it at points, um, and that was something he's not comfortable with, right? This is uh, a dragoon. This is a combat arms officer. Um, he is not comfortable with showing emotion in public, uh, but this really seemed to have a very significant effect on him, and that's when I asked him, you know, Mark, what was, what was harder, RMC or Afghanistan? Um, and to him, he felt that it was RMC because he said in Afghanistan it was tough and there was, you know, the risk of lives uh, on the line every day. But he felt that he knew what the mission was and that he believed in it. He believed that there was a greater good being served. He couldn't reconcile what he saw at RMC with any kind of a greater good being served to those young cadets. Now, he pointed uh, to two former commanders, two former heads 
of RMC, and they are now senior generals in Canada's military. Tell us about that, please. So the first person who we talked about, these, these were two commandants of RMC, and the commandant is like the top general. Um, you don't go to be a commandant of RMC unless you are moving up very rapidly in the ranks. These, these are people who are seen to be stars. Uh, so, for example, the former chief of the defense staff, General Tom Lawson, was a former uh, commandant at RMC. So it's, it's a plum posting and is seen as a career development position. Mark Popov argues that makes it a reason why many people have been unwilling to make change because they may not get that next star if they are vocal and, and they try to say something about what's happening there, in his opinion. Uh, the first person he talked about is General Friday. Uh, general Friday is now Major General, I believe, and he's posted to U.S. Central Command. Uh, so he's representing Canada uh, in the United States at one of the largest combatant commands down there. The other person was uh, Lieutenant General Meinzinger. Lieutenant General Meinzinger is the chief of the air staff. In other words, he's the head of the Royal Canadian Air Force. Um, so these are two people in significant command positions. He described what happened with General Friday as being akin to not just ignorance, but cover-ups. Uh, and that's where he was talking about, for example, um, the situation where young female sea cadets who are generally between the ages of 12 and 18 um, had sexually profane, and, and I've read the comments, sexually violent comments. I mean, I was absolutely stunned this would be said to anybody, uh, let alone said to young women um, who have not yet graduated from high school, who are there looking at a future career. Uh, and we know what was said because I have the witness statement of an officer who was crossing the parade ground at the time. Um, Mark Popoff says that General Friday punished him for calling the cadets out on the parade square, reprimanding them. He admits to having sworn at the cadets, which he was reprimanded for, but said you know, he was so shocked by what had happened and the fact that nobody would come forward and say who it was, um, and ultimately no one was punished for it, that that's why he did that. So he, he really feels that um, General Friday told him not to put anything down in writing, told him uh, not to put anything that might be A-tipped, which is access to information, so public release of records. In the case of um, General Meinzinger, uh, he said that essentially he, he just didn't want to know. He didn't want to know about the situation. There was a situation where some young women cadets were not going to graduate because they had been sexually assaulted, and as a result, they were undergoing counseling. Uh, and under military rules, if you are being counseled, you cannot graduate because you're seen as being medically unfit for promotion. He thought that was outrageous, considering in some of those cases, um, he believes that the perpetrator was another cadet. So that sort of, it, it's uh, two different situations. But neither are good that he's describing, and it's two back-to-back -back commandants who have gone on to very senior positions in the military. Now, as you point out, as you report, uh, both the uh, generals, Friday and Meinzinger, say this is not true, that uh, the colonel is not telling the truth, and the DND, Department of National Defense, is siding with the generals. Yeah, they are, they are saying this is not true. They took it seriously. Um, there really has been no accounting for why the military police could not find anything uh, on these cadets who yelled these sexually violent and profane things at the young women. Uh, the military police were called. They did investigate. Um, there was multiple people in those rooms, not just one. Um, and, and they sort of went to the military police and couldn't give us an answer on what had happened with that investigation, why it had been closed. Um, we notified them about this on Wednesday. I'm talking to you on Sunday there's still no response because there's no transparency on these kinds of things. So the military is essentially flat out denying it. They have not, however, provided any documentation to refute uh, some of the documents that Colonel Popov has provided to us. 
So I think there's still a lot of questions there. Um, and it's interesting to me, you know, they took General Daw out of command for signing a letter, which was a character reference for someone convicted of sexual assault. Uh, but when it comes to RMC and the allegations that sexual misconduct was not taken seriously, they appear to be standing by these two generals. Yeah, and uh, and Mercedes, that uh, Colonel Mark Popov, who served, as you said, in in Afghanistan, led troops in some of the most stressed areas of Afghanistan, says that what he observed, what he saw at the RMC, at this, uh, as, when he was the uh, director of cadets there in 2014-2015, devastated, I'm quoting your story, devastated his faith in the military, left him fearing for the future of the armed forces. My goodness. Yeah, um, and and certainly... I think a very strong word for someone who'd been to Bosnia and Afghanistan, um, who was who's seen as a rising star in a military, he really believes that he was punished um, for coming forward with this, that they ended his military career as a result of that. Um, and, and he was certainly very upset when we were talking to him. It took him a long time, I think, to reconcile with himself coming forward. It's very difficult for all these people to do it. Um, but I think this was also an important interview because, it is a man speaking out. And that's not because men's voices should be louder than women's on this issue at all. The vast majority of the victims have been women. But to hear from a man who said, I tried to come forward, I tried to say something, and not only was that not heard, I was told to not write things down and I was punished for my behavior, I think that that is deeply concerning. Uh, and I have spoken, by the way, to two people who served with Lieutenant Colonel Popov at RMC during the same period, uh, and they certainly had the same impression of the story he told me as, as what he told you on camera, that there was others who believe he was punished for this. Yeah. What you're, what you're saying what is you is oppose pipelines in Canada, but you support them in the UAE and in Brazil. That's what there you've actually specific, said. There are specific That's your double standard. It is not a double standard. It, it is, is a double a standard. Du- no, it's not. You, you it's make not. billions of dollars Mr. off foreign Pauliet, pipelines I and you would, shut them I down here at home, you, putting I our people out of work. You. Well, there's an exchange, part of the exchange, between a uh, member of parliament for Carleton, Ontario, Pierre Polyev, and the former governor of the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England, Mark Carney. And Mr. Polyev joins us. Did you expect it to become so lively? I did not. I, mean, I didn't realize that uh, that Mr. Carney's answers would be so contradictory that he would have so much hypocritical window dressing uh, in that he came before the committee and basically said he wanted to shut down and oppose pipelines in Canada while uh, profiting, uh, his company profits off of purchasing foreign pipeline networks uh, from oil companies in the Middle East and Brazil and I also didn't expect him to be so evasive in dodging basic factual questions. So uh, those things came as a surprise. Let me just play about 50 seconds of the uh, of the exchange that we didn't play already, Mr. Poliev, then I'll come back to you. Here's uh, you and uh, Mark Carney. Your company and your company alone, Mr. Carney, has the legal authority to reject the subsidies that have doubled power bills on poor and working class Ontarians. Simple yes or no question. Will you turn down those subsidies to give Ontario's poor a break? Just a yes or no. Uh, Mr. Polyev, as you said moments ago, there are contracts put in place 
uh, between the Ontario government yeah. um, and and players in the uh, in the Ontario power market yeah. that are providing electricity for Ontarians. Overcharging, and, uh, yes or no? And so both sides of those contracts yes or no. are, are honored. Yes or uh, no, Mr. Polyev? So I, I guess we're not going to get an answer. It, it looks like that you and your company will continue to profit off the backs of poor and working class Ontarians by taking these massive government subsidies that you wrote into a contract under your previous Liberal government. So, uh, a little bit more of the conversation that you had with Mr. Carney and Mr. Polyev. He repeatedly stated it wasn't as simple as, as yes or no, and that there are regulations in Ontario, and that there's a provincial government. I listened to more of the interview or more of the exchange, uh, which dictates energy policy in the province, if I understood him correctly. So, what, what, what's the takeaway from this, from this exchange that you had with him? Well, just a quick uh, refresher for your listeners. Under the previous Liberal government, um, Kathleen Wynne and Dalton McGuinty's governments uh, offered these extremely generous price subsidies for wind and solar energy. Now, this did nothing for the environment because, of course, we could all simply have bought pollution-free hydroelectricity from Manitoba and Quebec. But instead, we paid uh, three, four sometimes as much as 700% subsidies to companies to provide uh, unreliable uh, and unnecessary wind and solar. Well, one of the companies, according to the Financial Post, that received uh, a large share of this is Mr. Carney's company. Uh, And he is quite right that the contract that his company would have signed allows them to continue to receive these subsidies, but it does not require them to do so. And Mr. Carney has been going around lecturing people about bringing better values into business, doing what the right thing, not just doing what you can get away with. And his company and companies like it can get away with overcharging Ontarians because of these outrageous sweetheart deals they signed with the previous Liberal government that are locked in for 20 years or, or more in some cases. But I said, you know, why don't you do the altruistic thing, Mr. Carney? And lower the amount you're charging so that the system can lower the cost of electricity that Ontario households pay. Uh, households are paying 100% more than they were a decade ago, precisely because of these massive subsidies. When you look at your power bill today, most of it is not for electricity. Oh, I've it's seen that. for some of the global adjustment. Yep, yeah, I've seen that. Actually, subsidies. Mm-hmm. So uh, you also challenged him on, uh, uh, I don't know whether you did or not, but I know he's been challenged on net zero claims he made as the vice chair of Brookfield, which Mr. Carney subsequently adjusted. And then there's the uh, the other thing that you talked to him about, and that is oil pipelines, where Brookfield, if I understood you correctly, Brookfield Asset Management invests <clears throat> excuse me, in oil pipelines outside Canada, while you challenged Mr. Carney for his stance on the Northern Gateway Pipeline closure by Mr. Trudeau in 2016. Yes, uh, that's right. So uh, I asked Mr. Carney, do you support Trudeau's decision to kill the Northern Gateway Pipeline, which would have shipped uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan energy to the Pacific Coast, where it could be shipped to Asia? Um, now, that pipeline was going was supported by 75% of the First Nations communities along the route, who would have benefited from $2 billion worth of wages and other revenues for their schools, hospitals, and water systems. The CEO was going to be First Nations. It would have raised wages for our people uh, in Western Canada and revenues for the all levels of government. Trudeau killed it. And I asked Carney, do you agree with Trudeau's decision? He said, yes. I said, well, that's strange because your company 
has bought a whole network of pipelines from oil companies in Latin America and in the Middle East. Do you support those? And of course he does. So he supports pipelines abroad that profit foreign countries and help foreign workers, but he wants to kill them here at home. So what now? How does this continue? Is this a one-off or is it going to continue? Well, Mr. Carney is mused about running for prime minister. Uh, he is has spoke at the recent liberal convention. Um, he's uh, interested in getting into politics. And um, more important than that, he is uh, advising this government and the UN on environmental policy. He has a very senior position at the UN. Yes, he he does. wants to direct governments to take certain environmental decisions. That's why I felt it was so important to point out his hypocrisy. Here he is with a company that clearly gets a bunch of subsidies that raise power bills for working class people. Uh, here he is uh, profiting off foreign pipelines while opposing them here at home. Right. Here he is. Uh, uh, he's not even able to tell us whether or not the solar panels he his company buys uh, originate in the region of China, where which is suspected heavily of slave labor, and which we know uses coal-fired generation to produce the solar planet. And Mr. Polyev, I'm only going to stop you here because I literally am out of time. Michael Chong joins us on the program, a member of Parliament in uh, the province of Ontario. And uh, Mr. Chong was involved in a discussion with uh, the Minister of Health. And uh, Mr. Chong was looking for an answer, at least... I think that's what he was trying to do. I'm not sure that he got anywhere near the answer he was looking for. Mr. Chong, how are you? And thanks for joining us. I'm good. Thanks for having me today. Explain to us, to our listeners, please. And this is a big story. Most people have heard at least some of what took place. But but set it up for us. And then I'm going to play a little bit of your exchange with the health minister. What were you asking her? Well, uh, there have been problems with the government's microbiology lab in Winnipeg. It's a level four lab, which means that it handles some of the world's most deadly viruses and pathogens. And what we know is that two government researchers there were escorted out by the RCMP in the summer of 2019. And more recently, last January, they were fired. Uh, The government won't tell us exactly why they were fired. We know that CSIS, Canada's national security agency raised concerns about these scientists and we know that uh, they had been collaborating with Chinese scientists in particular scientists from China's military and scientists from the Wuhan Institute of Virology the city where the coronavirus appears to have emerged so that's what we know we've been asking questions and the government has been refusing to answer these questions all right and the Public Health Agency of Canada was ordered, was it not, by the Canada-China Parliamentary Canada-China Relations Committee to deliver to the committee all documents related to the firings of the, these two scientists uh, from this country's highest security laboratory as well. Let me play a little bit, just a few seconds, of your exchange with Patty Haydu, the Federal Minister of Health. Have a listen. 
Mr. Speaker, the Globe and Mail reports that seven, seven government scientists at the Winnipeg lab collaborated with Chinese military scientists and conducted experiments with deadly viruses. One of those Chinese military sciences, scientists was actually given access to the government's lab in Winnipeg. How on earth did a Chinese military scientist get access to the government's lab in Winnipeg, a level four facility equipped to handle the world's most deadliest viruses? And why are Canadian government scientists collaborating with China's military scientists on deadly viruses. Honourable Minister. Mr. Speaker, this question gives me an opportunity to thank the incredible hardworking researchers and scientists at the National Microbiology Lab who have been there for Canadians from the beginning of the emergence of COVID-19 and before. And I will say this about uh, the scientists, researchers and doctors. They were one of the first in the world to be able to to be able to create a PCR test, a gold standard PCR test that led to the ability for provinces and territories to test for COVID-19. Mr. Speaker, we are happy and proud that we have a lab of this stature in Canada able to serve Canadians across the country from coast to coast. Mr. Chong, I don't think that the uh, the audio system was working. I don't think that uh, the minister heard your question. That's one way to put it. Um, it's insulting to receive it is. an answer like that when we've been asking serious questions, questions so, that Canadians deserve to know. You know, national security is the government's responsibility, and normally we assume that the federal government is doing its job to protect Canadians, to protect their safety and security. But when we've got information uh, to the opposite effect, we have a, a responsibility to ask questions, and those kinds of answers are an insult. Uh, my notes here, and I listened to this uh, several times, your exchange with the minister, my notes read, no respect for Michael Chong's question, or the Trudeau government is covering up or attempting to cover up national security information from public view. That's just the sense that I had, and I look back to some more information, and I talked to you a moment ago about the Parliamentary Canada-China Relations Committee having ordered PHAC to deliver to the committee all documents related to the firings of these two scientists from this country's highest security laboratory. Also, the committee, tell me if I'm wrong here, ordered PHAC to deliver documents related to the transfer of Ebola and Hennepin viruses from Canada to China's Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, am I wrong about that? And Isn't that what you were looking for, for as far as answers are concerned from the minister? That's correct. And, you know, if this issue had been sprung on the minister at the last minute, the first time that had been brought to her attention on the floor of the House of Commons, you know, you might expect that she might give an answer that wasn't directly an answer to the question. But the fact is, at the committee level for months, we've been trying to get answers to these questions. This is no surprise to the government that we began, we've begun to raise it on the floor of the House of Commons. And so, you know, these are these are serious questions. You know, President Biden last week indicated that there were two credible theories about the emergence of this global pandemic, which has killed some three million people and resulted in restrictions that we've been all subject to over the last year and a half. The two credible theories are first, that it emerged from human contact with an infected animal, and second, that it could have been a laboratory accident in Wuhan from this Wuhan Institute of Virology. These are the two theories out there, and he's instructed intelligence community, uh, American intelligence community entities, to do further investigation and to report back to him in late August. And so this Winnipeg lab collaborated with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and if it turns out that this coronavirus emerged accidentally from a laboratory accident in Wuhan, 
then the role the Winnipeg lab played in helping to build the capacity of the Wuhan lab, the role it played in helping do research with the Wuhan lab, becomes a very pertinent question. And so that's why we're asking these questions. Canadians have the right to have their safety and security protected. And we as an opposition have an obligation to ensure the government is doing exactly that. Has the Public Health Agency of Canada delivered everything about the two fired scientists that the Canada-China Relations Committee demanded, the Parliamentary Committee, uh, and the two scientists, I should mention, were escorted off the premises of the National Microbiology Lab in Winnipeg. Have they delivered everything that you want? And shouldn't the Federal Minister of Health be involved in the process? The Public Health Agency of Canada has not delivered the information the committee has requested twice now. We've made these requests, and twice now the Public Health Agency of Canada has thumbed its nose at a parliamentary committee. Uh, we are now raising these questions on the floor of the House as a whole in order to try to get answers. And it's now clear that the government is stonewalling us. And it's unacceptable. Uh, Mr. Chong, why why is this going on? What do, you, what do you think is happening here? Because I had your colleague, the deputy leader of your party, Candace Bergen, on this program yesterday. And we spoke about her exchange with the prime minister when we listened to Mr. Trudeau, not responding to Ms. Bergen's question, but slyly suggesting that her... Uh, her whole approach had uh, racist undertones. Why is this going on? And and what do you make of the fact that uh, that the issue of race is brought into um, into response by the government when the opposition asks questions? Well, I think there's two things going on. I think first, the government is covering something up clearly. And um, when you listen to their answers in the House of Commons, like you've just played to your listeners. When you look at their refusal to hand over documents, it's clear they're covering something up. What exactly, we don't know, and the public deserves answers. Uh, The second thing that's going on is that the Prime Minister is playing politics with a very serious national security file, and he's playing right into the Chinese leadership's hand. He is suggesting that any questions, any criticism of the Chinese government in Beijing, of the communist leadership, in Beijing is uh, the same thing as anti-Asian racism, that the two are one of the same thing, which is completely unacceptable. We have a responsibility to do two things at once. We have a responsibility to both hold China accountable for its threats to Canadians, to our economy and to our values, and at the same time fight against anti-Asian racism and discrimination. We have to do both. If we do one and not the other, We either uh, fight uh, to counter China's threats and not counter anti-Chinese racism while we leave our fellow citizens vulnerable to this kind of racism and discrimination. If we do the latter, fight against anti-Asian racism and discrimination here in Canada, but not counter China's threats, we put our national security at risk. We have to do both. And the Prime Minister's suggestion in response to my colleague Candace's questions that we can't do both is highly irresponsible from the head of a government of a G7 country. Canada's parliamentary budget officer, Yves Giroux, is warning that rising interest rates may cool any stimulus impact or stimulus impact of the federal budget. The PBO, though, suggests a federal services tax on digital platforms like Facebook may raise more revenue 
than the federal government has forecast. So one question here, I guess the most fundamental question out of the box is, is Canada, with its cumulative and growing federal and provincial debt, facing unpredictable, choppy post-COVID seas, since interest rates can only climb from where they are? Yves Giroux joins us on the program. Mr. Giroux, good to have you back. How are you? I'm good, and you? I'm just doing wonderful. I just can't remember, and we'll save this to the end, but I can't remember what our bet was about. So if you would just sort of think about that a little bit, and we'll talk about it at the end of the interview. Is that okay? Perfect. Okay. Yep. Are you suggesting an expected rise in interest rates should be heeded by the federal government and be reflected by the amount of stimulus spending by Mr. Trudeau and his cabinet? Do I understand you correctly on that? Well, that's what we said in a report we released uh, sometime last week. Um, When we looked at the stimulus measures that are being uh, announced and implemented by the government, as well as the rebound that would have happened regardless of government stimulus spending, in good part because of the pent-up demand. People have been forbidden from traveling, from uh, eating out and going to shows and doing what they like doing. Um, There's a lot of pent-up demand. Add to that the fact that the Americans are throwing money at their economy uh, at a very rapid and unprecedented pace. Uh, two stimulus packages back-to-back in the U.S. So all these factors combine to um, to make for a spectacular, potentially a spectacular rebound in the Canadian economy and the U.S. economy as well. And that probably will, will force the Bank of Canada to increase its interest rates faster than expected, sooner than expected. The bank has said uh, early in the pandemic that it would leave its interest rates at um, the very low rates that they were at at that point, at least until 2023. But with the faster rebound than anybody expected back then, it's likely it will have to raise, start raising its interest rates uh, by the end of 2022. So and interest rates will slow the economy a little bit. Okay. So, so would it be better for the federal government to not engage or not directly or heavily engage in trying to help the rebound of the economy and just let it happen? Well, it depends what the government's objective is. When the government tabled its fall economic statement, it said that it would introduce stimulus spending measures between 70 to $100 billion to ensure that labor market indicators return to their pre-pandemic level. But by most uh, economists' judgment and account, this will happen regardless of whether the government uh, does anything or not by the end of this Canada year or this fiscal year, so either by the end of December or by the end of March 2022. So that's one thing. If the government's intention is purely to restore the labor market to, roughly speaking, the point it was at before the pandemic, it's probably not necessary to spend that much money. But on the other hand, if the government, the government's intention is to make structural changes to the economy, then that's a different, uh, a different, uh, different issue all around. Yeah, well, structural uh, changes to the economy after the pandemic we've experienced. Uh, I'm not an economist, but that that would concern me if that if that in fact were the plan. Um, well, well, let me ask you this: What would the impact be? on the overall economy or on businesses attempting to get back on their proverbial feet. If there were a significant spike, and I'm talking maybe two points, uh, I don't know if I'm out of, ra- out, out of line here, but two points, hmm. interest rate climb over the next two, two and a half years. Is that possible? And if it were to happen, what would it, what would it do to businesses trying to get back on their feet? 
Well, it certainly is possible. And what the impact will be of that for businesses will be that um, several businesses, like thousands if not millions of small businesses, have incurred additional debt. They've taken on additional debt to get them through the pandemic. They've also benefited from government support, but oftentimes these government supports were in the form of debt. So, and, and they've probably uh, incurred debt in other forms uh, other than government-supported loans. So it means that the cost of servicing that debt is likely to increase as they seek to refinance it. And the impact will also be felt by households. If you and me and our neighbors have to pay more on our mortgages or consumer loans, car loans, and so on, then it's, it reduces our disposable income. And that means we have slightly less money to spend on other things or to save. And that is often reflected in the amount of businesses that they receive from, from our patronage. So they, they will get a little bit more money from, from consumers. So that's the impact of uh, interest rate rises. On the other hand, the lucky few, the savers, will get slightly more returns on their uh, government or their guaranteed investment certificates if there are people who still have these uh, investment vehicles. Yeah. What do you see happening as far as the 2021 federal deficit is concerned? I think I, the number I saw, if I'm putting you correctly, was around $371 billion is what you're expecting. And you told, if I'm correct, you told us last year that massive deficit spending in response to COVID could happen only one time. It's going to happen more than once, right? Well, not to the same tune. It's not expected to happen again to the tune of $370 billion, the one that we will probably end up uh, having uh, once the books are finalized for 2020-21. What we're anticipating for the current year, the year in which we are, is about $157 billion. So it's more than or less than half what it was last year, which is going in the right direction, but is still substantial. Had you told me or anybody a year and a half, two years ago, that 2021-22 deficit would be $157 billion and people would barely blink an eye, I would have thought you were smoking something that's recently been legalized and in huge quantities. But that's the world in which we are right now. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. $25 billion deficit used to be something people raised their eyebrows at, <laughs> right? Now we're talking $157 yeah. billion, $400 billion last year. Mm-hmm. It's only money. Now, so on the other side of the ledger, I don't know if we're on the other side of the ledger, but let's just assume for a moment, your report on expected revenues for taxation of digital platforms like Facebook, assuming Facebook doesn't fire back, which Australia discovered Facebook and high tech is quite prepared to do, what do you see as far as revenues generated is concerned? Uh, it could raise between eight, nine hundred million dollars and a billion dollars per year once it's fully implemented. And here we're talking about a three percent tax on revenues of the Facebooks, Google, Amazon, Twitter of this world, as well as uh, marketplaces, so platforms where you sell your your items to an intermediary. Think about eBay here. So these types of platforms, if we levy a 3% tax on their revenues, not their profits, but their overall revenues, that would generate about a billion dollars per year. But there's a big but in that. That's, um, that's as stated in the budget, that's if there's no worldwide agreement on the taxation of these, uh, these big 
digital corporation. Right. So can we get to the most important aspect of our conversation here? Of what, course. What was our bet about? I know where I, you're going. <laughs> I, we bet beers. Now, we've established that you're going to buy. That much we know, right? Yes. <laughs> I, I thought we I thought we determined that, <laughs> or I, deter- I determined that. Yeah, that's it. You determined it. <laughs> okay. So, what was the bet about? I can't remember. I can't remember either. But you told me last time that you record everything and that you could go back and uh, and find out what it was about originally. So, I'm suspecting you probably have that up your sleeve somehow. Oh, you're you're thinking I'm a politician. <laughs> <laughs> no, but maybe you'd be a good one. Yeah, it could be good. Okay, I, I'll check it out, and I'll let you know. But, but you're buying, that's for sure. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.